This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You're listening to For the State, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Nina Kopel. Coming up, the world is reacting to the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and we'll look at the lessons to be learned from the group's data mining mistakes. We'll also discuss the Sunrise segment that had Australia up in arms and Indigenous rights groups accusing the show of racism. Plus, we look at the cake that didn't sit so well with the ABC editorial board. Joining me in the studio is Miranda Ward, journalist from Nine.com.au, Kitan Joshi from the CSRIO's Data61, and joining us on the line from Canberra is Miles Morgan, politics, defence and Indigenous affairs reporter for SBS News. Phrases like black market data, infiltration of the online community, and shadowy online propaganda have all been used by the media this week in its coverage of the developing Cambridge Analytica data scandal. The story broke after Christopher Wiley, a whistleblower from the British data marketing firm, revealed that information from more than 50 million Facebook users was breached to harvest information and target consumers leading up to the last presidential election in the US. This information was harvested from third-party platforms like games, quizzes, other applications on Facebook, which shared not only the user's data with the marketing firm, but all of their Facebook friends' data as well. This was part of a service they sold around the world, with US President Donald Trump and the Brexit campaign having used the service as part of their marketing strategies. I want to come back to the political side of this and how important our data is to those who are trying to win our votes or trying to sell us products. But first, I want to talk about what this all means for Facebook and social media and for us as people in the media. Um, I'm curious to know if anyone on our panel tonight has decided to d- delete their Facebook account after this. Miranda? No, I think my employer might suggest that's a weird thing to do as we use Facebook every day at work. But I think it would just be, it'd be an emotional reaction to something that I'm still getting my head around. In a few months, I might think, yep, you know what, it is time to quit. But right now, I'm just sort of adapting to all the information. Kitan, I saw you post something interesting on Twitter that was kind of an alternative to getting rid of your your Facebook account altogether. Can you share what that was? Yeah, there's a, there's a few things you can do to basically short circuit their data collection while retaining the utility of the service, right? So you can feed it noise, you can tell it that you're in funky locations, uh, you can tag faces the wrong way, and you can go about systematically unliking all of the things from 2008 
that you hit, you smashed the like button on when you were 10 years younger and that you now find completely embarrassing and probably don't define you as a person. It's not easy, and uh, but there's a few tools you can use to go through and cleanse your profile of information. But is that something we should be doing or, or are considering because we're worried about how we're appearing online? Or is this something we should be taking seriously from a, from a security perspective and in the way our information is being used? It depends on your personal preference. So a lot of us, I think, uh, would find that we have a lot of information there that is quite old and probably slightly embarrassing. I, I clicked through to my apps today and I found a whole bunch of them uh, from quite a long time ago that I'd completely forgotten that were still there. So I would recommend that that's something that you should at least check. You can also check your advertising preferences, so all of the information that it's using to target ads to you as well. Miles, Mark Zuckerberg has been called before the British Parliamentary Committee to explain how this breach of privacy occurred. Um, Facebook's total market value has dropped by more than 40 billion US dollars or 52 billion Australian dollars in just two days. Is this something that's going to change the way you do your work as a journalist? Yeah, look, I think it certainly makes journalists more cautious about how they approach their work um, and just just realising the fact that whatever's on the internet, you know, nothing ever really disappears and if someone really wants to access it, you know, they likely can. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how Mark Zuckerberg um, answers to that call from the British Parliament and I think it's sending reverberations throughout the whole media industry uh, as well, and including that is social media. So uh, I, I think it's a bit of a wake-up call for everyone. Should we really be worried about this? People, especially in the media, have reacted like this is an extreme violation of our privacy, a breach of our personal information. Hasn't this been going on for quite a while and why are we suddenly so concerned about it? Yeah, I think, especially with my generation and in that I say 20-somethings and even before that, you know, you you. you teenagers, I think we, we accept nowadays that we give up some of our privacy when we go online. It's just part of the deal. But I think the fact here is that people didn't consent to this sort of data being harvested makes me certainly feel uncomfortable. And I'm sure if you were one of the 50 odd million people, and just think about that for a second, 50 million people, that's twice the population of Australia. It's a huge number. Um, and if none of them or a majority of them didn't consent, then it's deeply unsettling that this sort of thing, um, this sort of data can be harvested. So, yeah. Miranda, do you agree? Are you concerned about what the implications of this could be into the future as we continue to put more and more out there and as we continue to rely on these social media platforms to communicate? Definitely. I think people in the media have actually been probably more aware of this as an issue than, say, my mum and dad or my siblings who use Facebook because we're sort of we all, we all mine Facebook for stories and we are, we are more aware of how that information gets filtrated through the internet. But I think now we're all going to be a little bit more cautious about, you know, putting our own information on there and also taking others' people's. And we're going to start to have a debate around the ethics of that. And it's, it's, it's a big concern that in 2018 we haven't quite worked out yet around sort of is privacy a human right does everyone have the right to it that really needs to be determined now moving forward after this I think that something that journalists have been talking about or thinking about for a while is how we use Facebook as a as a product so you know 
people often think of themselves as consumers on Facebook, like they are getting a product from Facebook. But I think what's really been revealed this week is that in a lot of ways, we are the product and we are we are providing something that is worth value to Facebook. Kitan, is that something that you think people will come to terms with from this this development? I think it'll, it'll take a while, um, but no one really likes to see themselves like that, I think. Um, so perhaps that isn't a point that people will reach, but hopefully... It'll change the way that we input information into sites like Facebook, right? So we'll probably think twice before we uh, signal to Facebook that we like a particular page or uh, we post a, uh, we post something with a certain collection of words in it because you can infer things about someone's personality from that and hopefully more people become aware of that. Yeah, I think it's, sorry guys, just to jump in here, I think it's a brutal reality, um, but it must be acknowledged, especially from my point of view in the media, that um, if you're on Facebook and you have some really lax privacy settings and you don't care what you post or who sees it, um, then you're fair game. And that's maybe that may make some people uncomfortable to hear that, but you look at a lot of um, news websites and the articles and the stories they use about you know maybe someone that has, um, has passed away or, or died or someone who's committed a crime, and you'll see pictures of them just straight up lifted from their Facebook account because they didn't care enough to change their privacy settings or they weren't, you know, uh, savvy enough to do it. So, um, yeah, there's in the same way that when you walk down the street, you have a reasonable expectation that you'll be filmed or photographed by, say, a, a passerby or a surveillance camera. I think the same goes online in that nowadays you can expect that if you aren't clever enough or careful enough to protect your privacy, that can be used by certainly people in the media, but anyone who really wants it. Um, and yeah, it can be disconcerting for some people. One of the things I found interesting just from discussing this with people here at 2SER, colleagues, is that this is really about who is vulnerable and who isn't. I think as people who work in the media and who are thinking about this, um, perhaps we're less vulnerable to these types of systems, but people who are less informed or uh, politically ambiguous, they don't know who they're going to vote for at the next election. Maybe they're people who are more at risk. Miranda, do you feel like that? There's something to who's being targeted here and who isn't? Yeah, I think it's something we can't let the market dictate on You know who's, who we're going to access this because, as you say, there are people at risk and it will go to those sort of vulnerable people because the people who are more educated and have a more understanding or have more access to the information, they will make decisions to protect themselves and it will leave the people not in those groups exposed to being manipulated in this way. I want to, if I can, read a tweet um, to you all that I found quite interesting. It's actually from Edward Snowden, and he made it. Um, he wrote it on the 18th of March, and he said that businesses that make money by collecting and selling detailed record of private lives were once plainly described as surveillance companies. Their rebranding as social media is the most successful deception since the Department of War became the Department of Defense. Um, does anyone think there's anything to that? Miranda, sorry. I was just going to say, I think Mark Zuckerberg, with his whole move towards social good, would be quite upset by that. Um, but I think there's a delicious irony in it. So It's interesting um, thinking about that in terms of intent. Um, and you mentioned, you know, how Mark Zuckerberg would feel about it. You always get this impression that he has a pretty clear understanding of his own intent. Uh, he thinks he's doing a good thing for a very large number of people. But when you look into the details of the story through omission and kind of looking the other way, um, a lot of information was passed out to third parties when it should have been carefully controlled. 
Yeah, I think that um, distinguishing between who is actually to blame in this is quite confusing. And if you haven't spent all day or, you know, the past week thinking about this, it's like there's, there's Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica, there's a third party that they then sent out to make this quiz and generate this data. And then there's Facebook. And it's quite difficult to understand how this all ties into place and who's responsible. Miles, do you think that that is one of the reasons that we haven't dealt with this yet? Yeah, well, as, as we sort of alluded to before, privacy advocates have been saying stuff Stuff like this has been happening pretty much since the advent of, advent of, of Facebook and social media. Um, and I think there's also... So, yeah, I think The Guardian, some of the reporters there were sh- sending out some really interesting tweets uh, in the lead-up to the story when it first broke and um, as it was breaking with all the legal threats that, they, that had been made against them uh, by Cambridge Analytica um, and even by Facebook in terms of trying to... Uh, shut down or lessen the impact of the story if those tweets are to be believed. So um, it sounds like there was a monumental effort behind the scenes to try and get the story shut down or lessened in terms of impact even before it was published. Um, But as I said, privacy advocates have been saying for years that this has been occurring. I think there's also a bit of a a care factor for people because, uh, as I was saying before, when you go on the internet, when you use social media, I think you accept that you will give up some of your privacy and people will try to mine your data. Um, so you, you can, it's, it's the same with the way that people in the West sometimes don't care as much about you know, famines or, or wars occurring in, in you know, the Middle East or in Africa because there's a, a bit of a care and desensitisation to it in that we're bombarded with these messages and concerns all the time. Sometimes it's just hard to care and you just get sick of hearing about it. So you just get on with, the, with your life and um, you don't really pay attention again until something huge and monumental like this pops up. Well, that brings me quite well to the next thing I wanted to, to pose to you all, and that is the the role that journalists have had in really uncovering the story. Um, and to read you another tweet, Carol Cadwalder from The Guardian and The Observer in the UK, who's been really instrumental in breaking this story and the reporting that has been going on for this series of reporting for the past year, she tweeted basically calling out for support for The Guardian because they ended up kind of giving this story to Channel 4 News, um, the New York Times, really as a way of breaking the story and getting it out into the world. And then she then had to go out and say, you know, please support us because we're the ones who were kind of on the ground covering this story and we really need support from from people so that we can keep doing this. Is it a problem that she had to, to go and actually ask people for this kind of funding after the fact? Miranda? I guess it comes down to The Guardian's funding model, which is to ask the audience for money in forms of donations and a membership program. If it had been News Corp, it would have been all behind a paywall. So perhaps she wouldn't have had to do that. Uh, I think, you know, it is tragic that, you know, she has to sort of go and say we had to sort of let other outlets in because we couldn't afford to do it completely by ourselves. But it's also something that's the beauty of journalism. It's You know, we all want to help each other break these important stories. And this story is really important and it shows the importance of public interest journalism, which is under threat in Australia as well. Miles, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And hats off to the journalists behind the story. It was a great effort. It was really solid journalism. And you can just tell by the shockwaves it's sending around the world. Um, That's the sort of journalism you dream of doing. Um, and the fact that they've had to essentially ask for a bit of a handout for doing it is is unfortunate, um, but it is a reality of our industry today um, that funding's drying up. Um, the media is diverging and splitting in so many ways. Um, and uh, as Miranda said, if it had been behind a paywall, maybe they wouldn't have had to have been asking for money, but they've obviously decided to do this uh, in the interest of the greater good, and all I can say to that is is good on them. 
You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Nina Copel, and I'm speaking to Miranda Ward from Nine.com.au, Kitan Joshi from the CSRIO's Data 61, and joining us on the line from Canberra is Miles Morgan, politics, defence and Indigenous affairs reporter for SBS. Breakfast television show Sunrise was met with outrage last week after their all-white panel made inaccurate and offensive comments about the adoption of Indigenous children. The panel was discussing statements made by Federal Assistant Minister for Children and Families, David Gillespie, who suggested Australia should be reconsidering its adoption process for Indigenous children. At the moment, when an Indigenous child in Australia is unable to remain in the care of their parents, their removal must occur in accordance with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Child Placement Principle. The principle says that Indigenous children should ideally be kept within family and kinship networks, failing which they should go to non-related carers in the child's community, and then as a last resort, carers in another Aboriginal community. The policy started from a grassroots political movement acting to prevent the reoccurrence of the stolen generation, which resulted in psychological, emotional, and at times physical and sexual abuse of many of the children who were removed from their families. Assistant Minister David Gillespie's argument was that the more open adoptions would increase chances of the children finding permanent and stable environments to live in, rather than cycling through foster care. To discuss this issue, Sunrise had an all-white panel, none of whom had any specific expertise related to child welfare or Indigenous affairs. Miles, I'm going to start with you because you do have that background in Indigenous reporting. Where did Sunrise go wrong? Look, um, in errors of fact, essentially, um, there's, been, there's been a lot of outrage about this story, a lot of it understandable. Um, however, I don't think we should be trying to shut down these kinds of debates. I wasn't particularly offended uh, by any of the opinions, uh, apart from some truly outrageous ones calling for another stolen generation. Um, but I don't think the fact that we had an all-white panel was necessarily a bad thing because as Australians, we care about our first Australians and Indigenous people and they're entitled to their opinion as much as I'm entitled to mine as an Indigenous affairs reporter. So um, their opinions, well, while I didn't exactly agree with them, I, I do agree with the right that they should be able to express them. The errors of fact, however, are pretty inexcusable, starting with Sunrise uh, and then also made by the panel. Um, I think, you know, it's breakfast TV. They're all getting up at 3 or 4 a.m. to plan their day. They want to get some um, some sexy headlines in there and get people talking. Um, but when you just go into the gutter like this and, you know, talk, to, talk about the front page of the Daily Telly, which in itself um, wildly extrapola- extrapolated the minister's comments, um, it's it's not good journalism. Uh, it's not good for democracy. I don't think anyone was the better for having listened to uh, or watched that debate. Um, they, there is a fact, which I can go into more detail, but broadly speaking, there were just errors about the laws regarding uh, Indigenous children and what families they can be placed with, um, numerous errors throughout. So, yeah, disappointing. Uh, I'm not totally surprised. Um, it has to be said, though, that Sunrise this week did have an all-Indigenous panel, to talk about the same issue um, after uh, a lot of protests around the nation. Was that them reacting to the anger, though, and the frustration that people felt at what was not just a white panel, but also a very unqualified panel? There were people who didn't have expertise in healthcare and Indigenous affairs. Um, Or was that them trying to equal the playing field? Look, I think it was a bit of all of the above. Um, You know, one of the tenets of journalism is balance. in terms of our in terms of our reporting, so I think Sunrise realised Sunrise realised there was a deficiency in terms of balance there, and having an all white panel talking about all Indigenous issues essentially. So to have the Indigenous panel was a welcome addition in terms of balance. We know um, there were a lot of protests 
uh, in Martin Place behind the Sunrise Studios, which Sunrise conveniently um, blocked out with a, a pre-recorded background. So there was national anger, national conversation about this, uh, which in some ways is a good thing because it's a very serious issue. There are nearly 20,000 Indigenous children in out-of-home care, not with their families, you know? So it's a very important issue. So when we start talking about these things, um, sometimes it doesn't really matter how you talk, start talking about them, as long as you are talking about them. So when I see something on Sunrise, an all-white panel talking about Aboriginal adoption, adoption, I'm not immediately outraged. Of course, when I hear these opinions, sometimes I am, but I'm glad that we're having the conversation. Uh, yeah. Miranda, do you feel that sense of responsibility to make sure that, as a journalist, we're kind of getting these stories right, especially when we don't necessarily have the perspective or the background that these stories are coming from? Definitely. You're always wanting to present a balanced viewpoint and the pressures of breakfast TV, I imagine, are quite immense. And Sunrise, as Miles said, they did follow it up with an all-Indigenous panel, so they, they did attempt to do the right thing in the end. But there were crucial errors made in that first broadcast, which are a little bit unforgivable from a journalist's perspective. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Nina Copel, and I'm speaking to Miranda Ward, journalist from Nine.com.au, Kitan Joshi from Data61, and on the line from Canberra is Miles Morgan, politics, defence and Indigenous affair reporter for SBS News. The ABC's independent audience and consumer affairs has upheld a complaint that a story that aired on Radio National's Law Report was too one-sided. The story was about a court case currently before the Supreme Court in which the U.S. is looking at the right of a baker to refuse to supply a cake for a homosexual wedding. ABC's Law Report featured an interview with James Essex, a lawyer working on the Masterpiece Cake case. While ABC's independent audience and consumer affairs said the story was timely and newsworthy given it aired during the Australian same-sex marriage bill debate, it failed to provide proper context. It was found that the interview was not in keeping with the ABC's editorial standards for impartiality and diversity of perspectives. I'm going to open this up to the panel. Do we feel like this was a fair conclusion to draw? As much as I'd like to say no, I think I think it was a fair conclusion. It's 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 it, it's a topic that I I would find hard to cover myself as a journalist because I wouldn't necessarily want to give someone sort of uh, fighting. Uh, against that situation sort of airtime but you do have to sort of give both sides of the story their right to voice what they want to say. Keetan do you have any feelings about how that was portrayed and whether or not the response was I guess fair? I imagine it's a constant struggle uh, when it comes to determining what's balanced and what's giving airtime to someone with horrible views and um, perhaps something that can be used to guide decisions is um, is the person who's giving me an alternative view being rational and giving me a clear-headed perspective, or are they kind of just spouting hateful garbage? Um, and, you know, perhaps that was part of the calculus behind this decision. Um, I hope it was. Miles, you probably have the most insight. You've been in a position where you've had to think about ABC editorial guidelines, I suppose. How did you feel about the response? Yeah, so caveat, I, I did used to work for the ABC and I now work for SBS and they're both public broadcasters. Um, I've got to say I've listened to the segment in question in which the, um, the, the law report host spoke exclusively or only to the lawyer representing the same-sex couple in the case in the US, uh, the US Supreme Court, I believe it was. So I listened to that and then I looked up the ABC's editorial policies, which are very similar to SBS's. Um, and the issue here 
is um, a balance, I think, in that, according to the ABC, that segment didn't give uh, another viewpoint any time to air. Um, I believe, I th- honestly, I think it's a bit of a harsh ruling because having looked at the editorial policies, the same with SBS, balance is critical to journalism. But according to the ABC's uh, policies, not every, I'm quoting directly here, um, it doesn't, a story doesn't require every perspective receives equal time or every facet of the argument is presented. So that to me says you can't achieve balance within every story. Think about the same-sex marriage debate. Think about your 90-second television story that you have to do for television. You can't present every viewpoint. If you try to do it every night, you're just going to get a schmozzle of a story. Um, so you want to achieve balance across, you know, you want to achieve balance across your news service, across your bulletins, across your, your website, 9MSN, for example. You can't do it in every single story. So to me, to hear a podcast with a lawyer representing a same-sex couple, it's not necessarily unbalanced. It should have probably given a line or two um, to, I don't know, the, the, the facts of the case, what was alleged, maybe what the, um, the, the defendant was it the defendant or the plaintiff, whatever the opposite side was trying to say or what they were arguing in court. But I don't necessarily think it was an unbalanced um, uh, segment. I think the ABC was a little harsh there, and I think the expectations can be a little unrealistic in trying to present balance in every story. Because you can also end up achieving a bit of a false balance if you um, if you give... Say that half the segment was on pro-same-sex marriage and half of it was anti-same-sex marriage. Then you, if you do that constantly, you give the impression that there's a 50-50 split in opinion. But there's not. There's not. It's just, it never happens. There's no 50-50 in, on any issue in Australia or the US for that matter. So, yeah, I think the umpire might have erred on the side of caution there. Miranda, you were kind of nodding along. You agree? Yeah, definitely. I think it's just making sure you give context to the argument, making sure... Uh, as Miles said, you don't necessarily need to go and interview the other side, but making sure you might read out a statement or give a little bit more yeah, context yeah. to their point of view. And that's, I haven't listened to the segment, so I'm not as across it as Miles is, but I think that's maybe what was missing. For me, what was interesting was that it was quite narrative. And maybe the problem here was that coming from the law report, people were expecting something more about the judicial procedure, the, the court case, what was happening on either side, and it became quite a narrative story. And maybe it just didn't have the right home Oh look, yeah, I'll jump in. Um, look, I think especially with court and legal reporting, the whole tenant, the whole, the basic fundamental principles of of court hearings is that there are two sides or two or more parties. So, yeah, you know, as I said before, the, it should have included at least a reference to what the other party was saying or arguing. Um, I think that's essential, uh, especially when it comes to anything to do with a legal reporting. Um, so, yeah, I think that the argument could be made for that. Uh, as I said, though. You, if you try to do it in every segment, you're just going to drive yourself nuts trying to, you know, achieve balance, that, you know, elusive thing sometimes. And that's it for Fourth Estate this week. I'm Nina Kopel. Thanks to my guests Miranda Ward, Keetan Joshi and Miles Morgan. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast so you never miss an episode. This was my first episode of Fourth Estate, so thanks for joining me. Next week's show will be hosted by Peter Frey, so make sure you listen again then. 